Fighting a long time, we have all lost so very much, so many loved ones gone. But you are not alone. There are pockets of resistance all around the planet. We are at the brink. You have no idea how important you are. If you're listening to this, you are the resistance. Hey, welcome everybody back. Steve with Sus Fidelity coming at you once again with Don Brohan and Michael Graney of the Center for Economic and Social Justice. Yes, <laughs> I almost pulled the WEF again. That's twice, uh, second time in a week. Uh, co-authors of the book, Earth Economic Personalism, which if you haven't gone, it's available at, unfortunately, Jeff Bezos, Amazon Corporation. So you have to get it there. Uh, solid book, about 120 pages, I think it was, 100 152. 152. I was I was within. Like Amazon, you can always go to Barnes and Noble. Or Barnes and Noble, yes, that is. Also available. I hate to sound like a commercial. Uh, many brick and mortar bookstores by special order since it's in the Ingram catalog. But or you can download a free copy from the CESJ website. And if you act now, operators are standing by. You can get something <laughs> free at his website. Just check out his website. Anyways, good morning, Michael Don. Thanks for coming on again. Oh, it's great to be back. So last time we talked about property, it's like uh, as the whole vision of the 2030 was their famous, now famous, infamous video of you will own nothing and be happy. And so last time, yeah, we talked about private property as ownership and control. Now we get to the question of who pays for it and how. Right. I'll, I'll take a shot at that. Um, what we're talking about here is private property and how you distribute to every person those rights to make sure that they can actually exercise them and specifically in an economy and that's one of the functions of money is a way to track what people are promising and what people owe and to make sure that there's always something of value that's that the whatever if it's currency that that is it represents something of value um if you are expecting from that piece of paper that you're going to be able to get something and you're and it's you're entitled to it and you don't get that thing well someone has violated your private property rights so private property is that's really at the heart in terms of economic power that each person can have a definable measure they, they will know what they are due um, when you don't have that kind of um, certainty about the value that there is something standing behind that promise then you don't really know what your rights are going to be within the social context or the economy so it's very important that people first as we talked about the last show understand that we each of us needs to have the uh, private property uh, as this is a universal human right and as Mike also explained in the last show 
how you exercise it, that's, that's very important. You can't harm other people or society or uh, the common good. You have to use it responsibly, but it is telling you what your rights are. So when we're going to look at, when you ask the question, who will pay for it, maybe just to clarify, um, we're looking at how people will be able to get the things, the economic goods and services that they need. And if you start from the premise that you don't need private property, you don't need to own, you're still going to have that question, who's going to produce, how are they going to be rewarded, if at all, and how do we determine what each of us then is due from what is produced? And so, you know, I think it, it, starting with at that point, it's still a question of rights and making sure those rights are upheld. And it also becomes a question of responsibility of the owner. And I think th this was um, something with, uh, that we had talked about um, in CESJ, is the classical notion of rights and duties. Meaning, I have the right, you have the duty to do whatever my right says I'm entitled to. And so this is coming starting from the owner, and you must fulfill that, whether it's the, the government or someone else. Another way of looking at that is to say, I, as the owner, also have a responsibility in how I exercise my rights. So when it's going to come down to money, I can't just go issuing something, a piece of paper, and say, Oh, well, this entitles me to, you know, get a million dollars worth of what you just produced. If I Here's my $1,000 note. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So um, laying that as the introduction, then Mike can expound more deeply on this. I'll try to find the mute, the, uh, the song, Money, Money, Money. <laughs> Well, you're in the money from the gold diggers in 1930. Oh, yeah, I don't want you're in the money. <laughs> no, uh, basically, it boils down to power. Who's going to have it? And, I mean, this is almost the last chance I have to say this. Exactly 200 years ago, in 1820, Daniel Webster noted that power naturally and necessarily follows property. And as Lewis Kelso reiterated in, I think it was an article in the American Bar Association Journal in 1956 with the terrible title, Karl Marx, the Almost Capitalist, property in everyday life means control. Or, or well, correct, Don, <laughs> but basically, power, control, and property. The reason private property is important, especially in something like Catholic social teaching, or actually in the, in, the, in the ethics of any faith or philosophy, is that you need power to take control over your own life. If you don't have private property in what generates your income, the means by which you survive, your life and liberty are endangered by whoever does control your income or your means of subsistence. So that this is why, for example, Daniel Webster and Benjamin Watkins Lee of Virginia, that's L-E-I-G-H, not L-E-E, by the way, uh, insisted that in order to be even to be able to vote, you should have property. Well, the, Let's get in the game. Backwards, what they should have said is, 
we should make certain that every voter can have access to the means of becoming an owner, not restrict the vote only to people who have property. Uh, because there may be good and sufficient reasons why someone doesn't want to own. I can't think of any off, off, off the top of my head right now, but there, there are almost there are good reasons to do almost anything legitimate. Yes, what, what do you say, Mike, that, for example, someone who takes a vow of poverty is voluntarily not giving up their inherent right, but saying they're not going to exercise it, that they will leave that power to decide, you know, what I get in, and how I produce an income. I, I will not personally have to be worrying about this because I'm in a group which, you know, we all have a certain level of trust and common purpose. So that I think, but that's not, you, you can't extract that natural right from, no. from a person. And it's always there to reclaim if they so choose. Yeah, and Dawn's exactly right. This is in fact why Chesterton, in my opinion, wrote his first book after becoming a Catholic in 1922 on St. Francis of Assisi. See, St. Francis of Assisi, because he, you know, adjured private property for himself, became like a patron saint of the socialists. Uh, I, I remember a Simpsons episode where they uh, were saying, you know, taking a quiz, it says, most overrated saint, St. Francis of Assisi. The, the Fabian socialists, all the socialists adored St. Francis of Assisi because he gave up private property. Chesterton pointed out that what St. Francis of Assisi did was not condemn private property. He recognized it as a good. What he said was private property is getting in the way of, is getting between me and God. Even though it's good, I will not do it for myself. I am giving up private property for myself because it's a distraction. And in fact, this is what Jesus said in, you know, remember the incident of the young, rich young man who comes to Jesus and says, what must I do to gain eternal life? or become saved. I forget exactly how he said it. And this is in all the synoptics. And Jesus said, keep the commandments. And the rich young man said, I have done this from my youth. What more can I do? And Jesus said, well, then go and take all you have, sell it and give it to the poor and come and follow me. Now, does that mean that no one should own private property or that private property is evil? Well, if it is, then Jesus lied because the young man asked, what must I do to gain eternal life? Keep the commandments. Nowhere in the commandments does it say, give up private property. In fact, thou shalt not steal actually affirms private property. Yeah. So what Chesterton pointed out was that what St. Francis did was show how good private property is by giving it up. So that, but in ordinary civil life, we can't all run off into the, uh, you know, into the desert to become hermits or live like St. Francis. Private property is a good. I mean, when you talk about your worldly goods, you're not saying worldly evils. Yeah, when, when they say that we would owe, owe nothing and be happy, well, then you don't own your clothes then, huh? Because that would be private property as well, right? Yes. And you'll be as happy and carefree as those darkies dancing outside the plantation and serenading old Massa, you know, in the evenings. <laughs> they owed nothing. 
They got what they needed, didn't they? Yeah, and to, to Mike's point, you're talking about slaves who, human beings whose labor, what they produce from it, they don't have they any get. claim to it. Someone yeah. else has taken it. And so when you say no one will own, uh, then you're also saying you don't even own your own labor. So therefore, if society determines that they, you know, society needs you to be doing some dangerous, difficult work, and don't expect compensation because you don't own it. You you are not due compensation. It's what we say we're going to give to you. So people, I think, have viewed property something evil. Uh, but I think there's also, which is it's kind of an ironic thing, is that the word ownership has been used for example say you, you must we must take ownership of the you know um the mission of this organization you know really feel that it is ours and responsible and this is ironic because it's saying um we need to have that psychology of ownership but forget about the rights of ownership well you so remember do you remember that ownership. movement during the summer where woke the woke movement it was still going on. But in the NBA, they got rid of the word owner of a team because they of wokeness. Reasons. They don't have an owner. You know, this is news to me. So it, I think that we need to understand ownership in its fullest sense, that you can't just leave out the rights portion of it and the responsibilities. It is also, I think it, 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 it's a valid thing to also stress that when you have that sense of responsibility over something, you know, that it that tends, if everyone has that sense of responsibility together, you will tend to have a better result rather than people just going off in a, you know, a million different directions following their own self-interest and not concerning themselves about what is the purpose we share? What are the values we share? Because we have to have something that we can all come together on. Um, and when we're talking about who gets the benefits of the goods and services produced, it gets really chaotic and arbitrary. If you don't know, if you can't say, I can measure what I'm due and I can see what you're due and we all agree to this very simple, logical formula. Mm -hmm. If you produce it, you then deserve to have, in terms of what you get from it, that proportionate amount. So it's it's takes anytime you increase the amount of arbitrariness, I mean then that becomes a way someone who has that ability to make the decision for you can get you know pretty abusive about it. I don't like, you know, the way you dress, I don't like your religion, I don't like this or that. And so regardless of whether you produce more than the next person, it's up to me. You know, or it's the delegated representatives of the collective or the government. Yeah. Part of the problem is, you know, what, for instance, C.S. Lewis mentioned when he said, there is massive confusion today on what you mean by my. For instance, you talk about my country, my family, my dog, my wife, my money. Same word. And some people will think that, oh, well, my means the same thing in all of these. Well, there was a, 
a famous legal commentator named Wesley Hofeld back in the late 19th, early 20th century. And he saw that lawyers and judges were using words, and these are the people who should have been using words in the most precise manner possible. Because as you know, or may not know, a single comma or a misspelled word in a legal document or in a law case can mean all the difference between justice and injustice. Uh, depending on how you do it. He, Hofeld noted that judges and lawyers were sometimes changing the meaning of words two or three times in a single sentence and apparently not realizing they were doing so. <laughs> he, he even wrote articles for the Yale Law Review that appeared as a book after his death, Fundamental Legal Conceptions. I've read it. It is one of the toughest books you'll ever read simply because, in some respects, you have to back off from and realize oh, I've been making this same mistake over and over using what in logic is called the fallacy of equivocation, a word that means one thing in this context and a completely different thing in this other context and saying them as if they were the same. Property and my and own can mean different things and you have to be very precise, especially when you're talking about actual human beings their dignity and thus their natural rights and the ability to exercise them, which of course in the just third way framework and in economic personalism means in the ideal world, everyone would own capital and that which means that in that instance, ownership means control and enjoyment of the fruits. And by enjoyment of the fruits, the usufruct, if you want to use the Latin, uh, control and the income and because i am the owner i get it not you not somebody who's who the state takes it as and redistributes it as the ubi or the great reset or largesse or freebies for everybody or goodies for the gang or whatever it doesn't no i own it and as long as i don't use it to harm myself other individuals, groups, or the common good as a whole, I should be free to do exactly what I please with it, within the you know the established norms of morality. Isn't it funny that the guys pushing for this, they're not going to give up their property. <laughs> Sometimes they do, but they do it in a way that makes other people dependent on them. But then I would argue maybe they haven't given up their power. If someone is dependent on them, they're still they're still controlling. <laughs> So, well, given the importance of, uh, let's say, keeper property and power, ownership, control, etc., uh, together for people becoming more fully human, how well would you say the just third way of economic personalism and the reset conform to this moral necessity of keeping ownership and control together? I'd say they're pretty much polar opposites. Um, one is saying we can run a an economy or society in a way where there's this there's no personal connection to what is produced and what is distributed so you don't you lose that concept when we talk about the three principles of economic justice your uh, principle of participative justice how you contribute how you participate in the economy then that dictates distributive justice which is what are you entitled to out of what was produced or the value of what was produced or the income? And so you've 
lost those two elements of economic justice. And you're also, by saying this, you're, you bring the third part into question, which is the principle of social justice, which at any level of society or the common good, it operates in order to ensure that each individual at that level has equal access to all these institutions that were developed uh, to enable humans to become more human and more, more liberated. Um, so the just third way or uh, economic personalism has those very clear principles of economic justice. Whereas I would be hard put to say, what are the principles of economic justice under the Great Reset, except for what Kelso, when he distinguished between justice and charity, it, it would be a system that's based to each, uh, from each according to his ability, to each according to his need. Okay, and that's gonna leave, rather than the person being able to decide that, how much they wanna participate or contribute and expect a reward for that. Now it's kind of left up to who knows whom. And it's, I think it's, it's fascinating that these guardians who are proposing this idea, they are the wealthiest people in the entire world or the most powerful. So, you know, it's, it's rather than saying, we're going to determine for you, we're going to keep watch over the system. We would say under economic personalism, each person is now must be the guardian, not only of what they are doing justice, but to every level of the common good. And that's the social justice and the act of social justice allows or says that each person is actually responsible to organize with other individuals to correct defects in the social order or the economy or whatever level of the common good. Yeah, on a more mundane level, although I, I can assure you looking at my image on this thing, that is not a halo over my head. Dude, uh, you, you just pure angelic spirits around you. Oh, of uh, <laughs> you may need to adjust your uh, sunlight blocker, Mike. <laughs> I, I try, but it just gets worse. Maybe okay. your excuse to finally get those drapes I've been promised for the past couple of decades here. You're right. Michael moved his office to the star where Bethlehem and the manger and the stars right outside. <laughs> anyway, on a more mundane level, despite my halo and the fog there, uh, to me, you know, in practical terms, the Great Reset wants to put into place a system that has never worked, despite the most heroic efforts imaginable to make it work. I mean, the Soviet Union tried everything to make the system work. It killed millions of people to try to make it work. Nazi Germany did the same thing. Throughout the 19th century, you had all kinds of failed utopian experiments, ended in disaster. And it still doesn't work, and yet people keep insisting, all you have to do is put in more money and try harder. Or, alternatively, get rid of those reactionaries and the capitalists or the whatever, or the wrong-minded socialists or those religious people or those irreligious people. They're all getting in the way. What they're not looking at is that the system cannot work. Isn't that what they always say, though? I mean, just uh, socialism fail because... We didn't implement it the right way. So, yes, they, they keep assisting. Oh, but you didn't do it right. Well, 
Maybe it's because there's no right way to do it. I mean, how many different ways are there to kill somebody in the right way? Or I should say murder somebody in the right way. <laughs> yeah, I, I yeah, would the fine also, right. <laughs> I, I would also point out that socialism is uh, a reaction to the defects of capitalism. In part, in the impulse socialism was put in not to replace capitalism. Some of the earliest socialists were capitalists themselves. But it was specifically directed at the institutions of the old order, most especially the Catholic Church. In fact, the original name for socialism was the democratic religion. They were going to replace you know, church, state, and family with this monolithic entity, even though it might be you know, atomistic little entities all over the place. But you know, get rid of the family, get rid of organized religion, get rid of traditional political arrangements, and everything will be perfect. Nobody will own everything. Everyone will be taken care of. Our guardians will do this, that, and the other thing for us. We won't own, but life will be absolutely perfect, and we'll be all happy. And John Lennon's Imagine will be playing 24-7. Oh, my God. That is such a captivating <laughs> tune, and it's so easy to start singing the lyrics. Yeah, but... Uh, to finish what I was going to say... For the just third way of economic personalism, every single part of that has worked. The big task, of course, will be a, basically a social engineering one, not in the way that Keynes or these others meant social engineering, but how do we work with our institutions to try to fit the different parts of the just third way together so that they work in a harmonious way and enhance the dignity of every single human being. I mean, there's no part of the of you know economic personalism you can point to and say that doesn't work because it's never worked. No, every single one has worked. Of course, the one that is most uh, obvious to me is the financing. This is the way commercial banks and central banks were set up to operate: monetize your future wealth, and then. When the, future, when the future wealth becomes present wealth and becomes functioning and generates income, repay the financing. I mean, you make a promise, you keep the promise, and then you get the, the income for yourself. Instead of trying to scrimp and save your whole life to accumulate money savings to buy what someone else has. No, you, it, it's called form, forming capital. You, you get an idea, that will work and you make promises to people to say when this becomes productive I will pay you back what you lent me or I will pay you for the land that you just gave me or the machinery that you just gave me and then after you're paid off then I will enjoy the income for myself I will have power over my own life I will have control over it I don't have to worry about somebody else telling me what to do Right. And I think that's that's the basic notion of how someone can become an owner when they have nothing to start with, is that if you can show that you have what's called a feasible business project, that you know that there will be customers with money who will buy the products at a certain point in time that's reasonable to whoever's going to, where, whoever may be lending you money. Um, then it's that 
good that predictability that high level of predictability that there will be something to sell and thereby generate profits that you know that it's that future stream of profits is what is paying off your loan not the fact that you have um, enough assets right now in order to use those so because for someone who is poor or just living paycheck to paycheck they can't accumulate enough in order for example to buy shares or to buy capital so uh, to harken back to earlier in our conversation where mike was talking about how um, the founders of this country some of them did not want to give the vote to people who had no property you know that the reaction against that is you know we're here today and i, I don't think most people would agree that those of us who don't have productive property should not vote so that right to the vote was given and disconnected from the notion of property. But what was really the, the missing element that would have connected us back to not only the right to vote, but the right to obtain productive property. And here, I guess I, this is a uh, double use of the word, but to be able to exercise inherent property rights in something that is will produce an income for me. And that was what George Mason had put into the Decora Virginia Declaration of Rights. Very important. This was a historic miss, near miss, that we, I believe, would be in a different position today in the world would be if we had followed what George Mason was saying, which was eliminated by Jefferson. And that was uh, the reason government is formed is to protect each person's life, liberty, um, with, access, with the means to acquire and possess property in order to uh, pursue uh, security and happiness. It's with the means of acquiring and possessing property. That was the, the very subtle missing thing that was taken out of the Declaration of Independence. So if we have a workable means, and this is what Lewis Kelso came up with, he, he was a lawyer by a profession, but he was a corporate finance lawyer. So he was thinking about, for example, how, how do the rich get more capital? Well, it helps that they have assets to begin with because they, more than using those existing assets, they can get loans based on the fact that they have assets that could be seized if the loan doesn't happen, if they default on the loan. So they have that security that the lender is looking for. So they never even have to actually use those accumulations from the past. It's sort of the safety blanket. So Kelso said for the non-owner who's borrowing and you know expecting to pay off a loan with the profits, what happens if that loan does not get repaid? Well, as an alternative to having all that, that heap of past savings or assets, the non-owner, if they have access to capital credit insurance, which means an insurance on that loan, then that becomes a means of repaying the lender if that loan goes back. So if you have a national program, and this, when I say national, that means every citizen, uh, man, woman, and child, having now an equal right to the capital credit that can finance the future capital formation of the country. 
So you project, okay, this, um, the American economy, uh, we can see will be growing at a rate of $3 trillion more dollars per year. That's the needs, the new capital needs. So we take that amount and it, well, we, I guess, determined that it was roughly $3 trillion. And then we look at, well, how many men, women, and children are in this country? And now we say citizens. And you know, getting from citizen to person, we can do this, but we're now going to just assume we're in the legal system that exists right now only for America. So once you know what that number is of citizens and you divide it into that total growth needs of capital, capital growth needs for the coming year, then you can say, okay, that would work to, it was about $12,000 of new capital growth that each person could have access to finance if they had the means. So then the next question is, what is the means? And that is where Kelsey's uh, understanding, he, he shared this with uh, Moulton, Harold Moulton, who was the president of the Brookings Institution, which got, he was like the counterpart to Keynes. And he got forgotten even by the Brookings Institution. They don't want to touch him. Okay, he was there for 20 years, and it's a funny thing. It's like he never existed. But he, his notion was that you don't have to finance growth and you shouldn't finance new growth out of past savings. And why is that? Because if you don't spend the income that you produce in order to buy the goods and services someone else produced, well, that messed up their projections in terms of what they could expect in terms of profits. And it, it also, um, it, tends to enrich the same people over and over. It does not allow for new people to come into the ownership game. So Kelso envisioned this system whereby through capital credit, each person could acquire those assets that would be paid off by the future profits that, those, that are attributed to those assets and thereafter they would have a, a, a current stream of income from those assets. And, it, and he came up the the alternative to collateral, which is the capital credit insurance. Now, the other part of this equation is you've got credit. What is the mechanism by which the investor um, puts money into the company that they're gonna buy shares in, and the shares represent the new growth? the company can't use a promissory note to go out and buy the new equipment. The company needs some form of, form of spendable money. So money is also, this, this is a, an essential part of the whole system is understanding money that it becomes, there are many ways to define it, but Kelso pointed out, this is a way of measuring the value of transactions. So we have a number that we can determine. You're gonna need a standard of value so you know that every unit of the new currency going out, it's, you know what its, what its value is. It isn't like, oh, tomorrow it's now, you know, 10 times more than it was uh, today. So in this overall system, you, and, and this involves how you create money that has value behind it and not, and this is one of the problems with the Great Reset, is 
what's going to stand behind the money in that system if you're basically using government to dole everything out to people and the government if it continues doing what it's doing now which is to continually spend more than it's able to take in it's going to go further and further into debt and what it's doing now which i presume is what will continue with the great great reset is that the government debt becomes what stands behind your money so that's what is behind it right now is government debt and it's just getting ridiculous and what happens is then you lose that moral connection between you know i promise to deliver something of value well now it's becoming what really you know as long as the government can tax americans that's you know that's what the the full faith and credit of the government that's what what it is it's, yeah at some point we'll collect enough taxes that we will make good on what this piece of paper says and we're just saying no money should be based on the things that are produced in the economy you can put a measurement it takes away centralized control over determining value that's you know what the marketplace and consumers and producers having that uh, you know the give and take to determine what the market price is so um i think that's so that was my transition into you know the the question of who pays for this what is this and my, i'll let mike <laughs> on that. i was just going to say that as you can see the, the money question is a little bit complicated um the danger of course in getting a, an extremely condensed summary like this is that sometimes it can be a little bit misleading because most people the first time they hear something will pick and choose what they want to hear and that sort of thing and to put in a free plug read this the the parts in economic personalism on money so that you can keep referring to it whenever you come to something a bump in the road because frankly every time you say something about money that people don't understand it's it's a bump in the road uh most people have deified money to the point where they won't even listen to common sense about it, even from traditional, you know, money type people. Right. And Mike is pointing out something that money system has gotten so complicated because we don't know what is standing behind the, the money. We don't really know what it is. We start to value it as a thing, as a commodity versus it as a social tool that helps us grow as a, as a society and grow as individuals. So that whole area is, you know, that is a topic that can be discussed, you know, a series of shows in itself. Yeah. But it is, it is key to answering what George Mason was talking about with the means of acquiring and possessing property. Yeah, and I'll be the I'll be the bad guy. I'll say I agree with that idea of uh, not letting somebody vote that doesn't own anything, because that eliminates all those 18, 19, 20, 22 year olds that do nothing besides get loaded and then go out and start pushing. Hey, I want Bernie. I'm with Bernie because he's going to give me or the Obama lady. Uh, where'd you get that money? I got my Obama money. Where I don't know his stash. Uh, yeah, remember that one <laughs> you know uh, to address your point there if they know as soon as they become, you know as their children starting from the you know when they're able to understand words if they understand that something is mine and this is something that it's not 
you're not rich overnight. This is something that grows. You have to understand how it grows. You are responsible for it. Then I think that whole question of the 18 year old who says, you know, you know, money be damned. I don't need it. I don't care about it. Well, I think they're going to feel differently if they actually have something they've been accumulating year after year and hopefully understanding how that happened and knowing the risk they're going to feel that they have something to lose at that point you know all this the the, the talk about um, the government or the collective giving you what you need that's going to be less realistic and relevant you said that r word you'll never hear the following at a rock concert uh, after somebody yells on we want personal freedom woo also we want responsibility yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> Basically, the bottom line here is, you know, despite all the technicalities of money creation and everything else and the complexity of the system, who whoever finances capital owns it and whoever owns it controls it. The whole point of the just third way is to make it possible for as many people as possible to own capital, thereby control the capital and thereby gain control over their own lives so that they can become more fully human by exercising their natural rights and becoming virtuous and all that good stuff you learned in philosophy 101 or you should have learned in philosophy 101. But those 18, 19, 20, 21s did not take. <laughs> well, no, 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 you can't do that because those are dead white European males. We have to get rid of all those classics or update them. I actually saw a tweet today saying that there was somebody was happy that they got rid of the Odyssey. Yeah, that was the Wall Street Journal yesterday. They oh, no. quoted somebody who is a Facebook friend of mine, John Delaros, uh, who said, you know, what the heck is going on? I mean, how, how do you do this? People need to read these things, even if only to understand their own language right now. I mean, this is why I have a problem with people updating classics and getting rid of all the old ideas and putting in their new ideas and say, and attributing it to the old author. I mean, who needs Homer? We have our Odyssey today. What's an Odyssey? Yeah, what's an Odyssey? <laughs> you wouldn't know what James Joyce was talking about. It's a new, it's a new video platform. <laughs> Actually, Don, that's a very bad example because no one knows what James Joyce is talking about anyway in Ulysses. Well, at least he has some cultural reference. <laughs> So when I, again, ladies and gentlemen, when we started this, I read this and all the other books that Schwab put out. He's got another one coming out in February. And I haven't read this yet, but I've been listening to Michael and Don talk about this for a while now. And this is almost the opposite of this, where this is the opposite of this. So this kind of answers this. <laughs> so in a sense, we're talking about a solution to how we combat this. Now, we are, our numbers are small. Uh, we are not as funded as he is. Uh, we'll probably lose, but we got to fight. No, if you believe that uh, great is truth and mighty above all things, we will win. I can't say when or how, but we will. I mean, the main idea is to push the uh, push the ideas. Is uh, the other Sam Adams, who I thought was a scumbag, he had a great line of. Uh, <laughs> and he ruined he's named for a beer but he destroyed his family's beer uh, brewery it's amazing I don't know how you who came up with that marketing idea yeah, it's just 
just, just to comment, Stephen. Well, I was just going to go with the whole, you know, it doesn't take majority, but a silent, uh, tireless minority hell-bent on si uh, setting brush fires in exactly. people's minds. Exactly. But another thing to remember is when you say that we will win, we're going to win for everyone. And that's the thing is that this is something that is meant to lift up everyone and not exclude anyone. So that is really the choice of a system that is looking uh, to empower each and every human being versus having some people in control and making decisions for the rest of us. Yeah, well, Michael, Don, appreciate it as always. And we'll do another one next time on I think we want, you're wanting to do one on the addresses uh, Pope Francis' concerns of offending anyone against human, human dignity? Well, the idea, and we can toss it around a little bit more, is, you know, right now Pope Francis seems to be advocating something that we don't think will work. What we'd like to say is that there is something that is fully consistent with natural law and thus with Catholic social teaching. We call it economic personalism but we think it's a much better option than the Great Reset or any variation on it. Uh, it's a simple presentation, at least we hope it is. Uh, it, it basically what we've been saying all along. And in your words. Needs to hear it, that's all. Amen. Yeah. Let's just say it in a fewer words. <laughs> <laughs> well, until next time, appreciate it, guys. Thank you, Steve.